Welcome to the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more information on events, news, and research, visit www.mrcbg.org. Scott Leland. I'm the executive director of the Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government, which is uh, hosting today's talk. Uh, and it's my uh, pleasure to introduce our speaker, uh, Dr. Angela Garcia Calvo. Uh, Dr. Calvo, Dr. Uh, Garcia Calvo, is a visiting fellow at our center, uh, Mosavar Romani Center for Business and Government, and she's also a Marie Curie fellow in the Department of Management at the London School of Economics uh, and Political Sciences. She has a PhD uh, in political economy from the London School of Economics. She also has uh, an MBA from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Uh, but by far and away, her most important degree is actually uh, her MPA, her Master's in Public Administration, which she got here at the Kennedy School uh, in 2008. So welcome back, Angela. Um, so Dr. Garcia Calvo works in the field of comparative economic uh, political economy. And her talk today stems from a research project in which she is investigating the interactions between firms and governments in late industrializing economies uh, like Spain and South Korea. And then she's looking at how those interactions help shape economic transformation. She's looking particularly at three uh, sectors, banking, automobiles, and information and communication technology. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Angela Garcia Calvo. Um, thank you, everybody, for, um, for coming to listen to my talk. And thank you, Scott, for the very nice introduction. Um, so, so let's get started. Uh, in 1980, there were 79 countries whose income per capita levels were somewhere between 20 and 50% of the U.S. income per capita. By 2016, out of the 79 countries, 21 had managed to uh, move over that 50% threshold uh, income per capita threshold relative to the U.S. Now, what's a little bit problematic is, uh, is that out of those 21 countries, eight of them continue to have push this a little closer. Uh, continue to have uh, economies that depend. Can everybody hear? I'm sorry that depend primarily on, on natural resources. So think economies that are based around oil and gas, tourism, or agriculture. And only three of these 21 countries had actually managed to become the home base of globally competitive firms operating in skill, capital, and knowledge-intensive industries. And those firms have uh, well, exercised a degree of market power and have recognizable brand names. And those three countries are Taiwan, South Korea, and Spain. Now, the fact that there are only three countries that have managed to uh, increase the complexity of their economies to such a degree is worrying because that uh, more complex production structure tends to be associated with sustainable economic growth and better quality employment overall. 
So the question is, how did they do it? Well, there are two main uh, ways to think about that. The first uh, line of argument is what is generally referred to as the liberal argument. So the idea behind it is, is that competition through markets is the most efficient coordination mechanism. So uh, a country's best chance of becoming an advanced economy is to participate in global production networks or global value chains and move up to the higher echelons of those global value chains. Uh, now, well, there's truth to the argument, and it's, it's true also that uh, the broader participation of multiple countries in global value chains is associated with a very strong decrease in, um, uh, in the number of people living in, uh, at levels of absolute poverty. So think of uh, people living with one or two dollars a day. But however, well, as I mentioned, only three countries have managed to reach those higher echelons of global value chains. So it seems that while participation in global value chains is feasible, reaching out those higher echelons of global value chains is a lot more difficult to do. Now, the alternative argument is, one is, is what is, gonna, is generally referred to as the developmental state argument. So the idea behind it is that late, late industrializing economies uh, can do it solely through markets, and states play a fundamental role mobilizing and allocating resources for economic development. So this argument was developed in the 80s and early 90s but by a group of scholars that is generally referred to as the developmental state scholars. And what they studied were the industrialization processes of mainly three countries, which were Japan, Korea, and uh, Taiwan. Uh, but the problem, so it's a fair argument, but the problem with it is that it was developed to explain processes of industrialization. And what I'm trying to look at is not really the transformation from an industrial to, from an agricultural to an industrial society, but a transformation of what are already industrialized societies into something a lot more complex. Another problem with the classic developmental state argument is that, well, those arguments were developed in the, about processes that took place in the 60s and the 70s primarily, and since then, circumstances, geopolitical circumstances, economic circumstances, even social circumstances in these and other emerging economies have changed substantially. So that makes the argument difficult to uh, apply to the today's circumstances. So that leaves us with a number of open questions. First of all, how do countries reach the efficiency frontier in complex industries? Uh, is state activism still necessary to do so? And if so, what types of state activism are we talking about? Is there one or are there more possible pathways to reach the efficiency frontier? And if there are several, what determines a, a country's choice of pathway? And more importantly, what are these pathways equifinal? Do they reach the same type of outcomes or are there any differences between them? So my goal is to, and this is still work in progress, is to answer these questions through a comparative analysis of two countries, which are Spain and South Korea. Now, these are not two countries that are generally um, compared in the literature or you know, put together in any way because they're so far apart and apparently so different. But I would argue that there are uh, important similarities between the two of them. So first of all, the two countries industrialized very rapidly in the 1960s and 70s in the context of right-wing, long-term military dictatorships. So uh, Spain was run by Francisco Franco between 1939 and 1975, and uh, Korea was ruled by Park Chung-hee between 1960 and 1979. Um, so the models of industrialization in the two countries we saw were also fairly similar, where both of them were state-directed models that foster industrialization through the development of a very similar set of mature manufacturing industries, including chemicals, steel, 
the automotive industry and shipbuilding. And what's interesting is that the growth trajectories follow, continue to follow a, a parallel trajectory from the 1980s on. So you can see here how well the two countries uh, tend to follow a parallel trajectory, which is uh, similar to one another, but also distinctive from other new advanced economies. And uh, another important similarity is that, well, today the size of their economies, it's also relatively different. So the two countries have populations of about 50 million people. You can see here ranked uh, relative to the largest economies of the world as of 2017. And you can see how the size of their national economies is very similar, therefore with similar populations. Uh, what this means is that people tend to have in the two countries the similar standard of living as well. And I would argue that the size of the country matters, and uh, that countries that have a size of roughly what Spain and Korea have, or even bigger, um, have sufficiently large workforces and sufficiently large internal markets to support the broader range of sectors than smaller economies or um, well, state cities such as Singapore or small countries such as Ireland. And for instance, if you're talking about an automotive industry, well, it would be very difficult for that industry to be developed in, in a small country because you wouldn't really have the necessarily, uh, the necessarily large uh, labor force for that. So that gives you greater choices in terms of the types of productive structures that you can have and the upgrading and transformation and strategies that a country can follow. Uh, now, what is interesting, though, is that um, regardless <coughs> of the similar trajectories and the fact that both countries started by industrializing in mature sectors, if you look at the productive structures today, both of them have a fair degree of complex industries, but they tend to be grouped uh, around different sets of sectors. So if you look at Spain, well, most <coughs> of the largest firms that are globally competitive today tend to be uh, clustered around complex services such as retail banking, civil engineering, telecommunication services, energy and other utilities. Um, by contrast, if you look at Korea, most of the largest firms uh, still have a very strong manufacturing core. In fact, uh, about 30% of Korea's GDP depends on manufacturing, which is a share very similar to that of Germany. By contrast, the equivalent figure in Spain would be 13%. So how do I, how do I go about um, well, answering these questions? So my analysis revolves around the concept of upgrading. And upgrading takes place when firms go from competing on the basis of cost to competing on the basis of complex advantages. And what I mean by that is that firms in those countries are able to deliver goods that are more complex and, or have more advanced features, uh, their processes are more efficient, or their organizations are better shaped and more efficient as well. The problem with competitive advantages is that they're not universal and they depend on the characteristics and the structure of particular industries. So that leads me to articulate the study around case, industry case analysis. And I've chosen, as Scott mentioned, three, which are ICT, banking, and the automotive industry. Now, the choice is not random. I chose these three sectors because they're very relevant to the Spanish and Korean economies, and, but also because they are uh, upstream industries that have very dense networks of connections to many other industries. Uh, what that means is that if you move the needle in one of these industries, say for instance, if you're talking about automotive and you move the needle in that and you do well, then you're likely to also be propping up uh, a number of adjacent industries such as the chemicals industry, the plastics industry, the steel industry, and so on. Uh, the analysis takes a historical perspective that starts around the mid-1980s, and that's because 
that's when the process of transformation started to take place and goes on until the 2010s. And that's to cover the whole process of transformation and their long-term consequences up to, up to today. And it's a qualitative analysis due to the difficulties teasing now the effects of public policies on economic outcomes and the complexity of each one of these industries. Uh, so how do, I, uh, how do I go about answering these questions? Well, I mean, I'm going to be mixing uh, information about, well, empirics about one of the case studies, which is ICT, and some of the arguments and the thought process behind how do I interpret this change so that it's a little bit less arid. Um, now, the information and telecommunications techno communications technology is a very broad sector. In, it includes services, hardware, software is very broad. So in order to make the analysis feasible, I, I reduce it to two sub-segments, which are voice and data transmission over fixed and mobile networks, so your basic communication, telecommunication services, and then telecommunications equipment for both professional equipment, so the switches and the networks, and towers for cell phones, and also the user equipment, so cell phones. And that's because, and that's not random again, and that's because, uh, well, in the mid-1980s and 1990s, these were the sectors, these were the segments in the industry that were going, growing the fastest. So if you look at the way that uh, these sex segments of the ICT industry were doing in the mid-1980s, it is fair to say that Spain and Korea operated very well um, below the efficiency frontier. If you look at telecommunication networks and the profitability of the operators, you can see how compared to a number of countries that were doing fairly well on ICT, Spain and Korea were very much at the bottom. You can see how in terms of access lines per 100 inhabitants, well, Spain and Korea had more than half of what Sweden and the UK had at the time. And what this meant is that there were large portions of the countries that did not have uh, access to telephone service at all, or if you were in a city and you wanted new service, then you had to wait uh, for a very long time to get it. Uh, revenue per access channel, meaning how profitable the operators were relative to what the services that they were, they were offering, was also significantly lower than those of the other countries. In part, that is a reflection of the lower levels of economic um, um, development in Spain and Korea relative to countries such as the U.S. or Sweden. Uh, but it's also the fact that, but it also reflects organizational problems within telecommunications operators. What it means is that they had very bloated. Um, uh, workforces that were not very efficient at providing the services that they were providing. And the case is very similar if you look at electronics manufacturing. So uh, the segment was very small and of similar size in the two countries. That would be the professional electronics segment. And what's more important, its capacity for, for innovation <coughs> was very, very limited. So, and it was reduced primarily to absorbing um, research that was done uh, abroad and then adapting that that innovation to the local circumstances of the two countries. Uh, by contrast, is if you look at so, the, well, as I'm mentioning, well, it's about transformation and you know being becoming reaching the efficiency frontier. So if you look at the situation of these uh, SaaS segments in 2011, the situation had changed significantly. Uh, so as I was as I was commenting before, well, uh, Korea has two very large manufacturers of electronics, very globally competitive, which are LG and Samsung, uh, but you hear less about their telecommunications operators, at least on a global scale. By contrast, if you look at telecommunications operators, you can see uh, through a comparison here uh, of, of 
the largest uh, integrated operators worldwide. Well, um, Telefonica, which was the Spanish uh, former monopoly operator, was doing very well, was the fourth uh, largest in terms of revenue. It was also very profitable, operator very well run, very lean in terms of uh, revenue per, um, per access channel and revenue per employee. So the question again is how did this happen? How does this, how this, this process of upgrading take, pl take place? So in order to undertake that shift from competing on the basis of cost to competing on the basis of more complex advantages, what firms need to do is to restock their, well, their amount of or their quality of their resources and capabilities that they have. So part of it can be due through internal resources. So for instance, very large firms tend to have lead pockets, so they have significant capital resources that they can use to undertake these types of transformations. Uh, they may also have several divisions and they may be able to allocate personnel across divisions to fulfill new needs. However, I would argue that for the most part, when you're trying to undertake that type of transformation, what really matters is having access to external resources. So I was mentioning before how telecommunication networks in Spain and Korea were fairly deficient, the equipment was not up to date, and so on. So well, well these firms needed to, um, needed to invest quite a significant amount of money to expand these networks, to universalize them, and to purchase the uh, required, required state-of-the-art uh, equipment. If you were on the, um, another thing that I mentioned is that they tended to have very bloated and efficient um, organizations. So they needed to undertake significant res internal restructurations and that mean laying off people and that meant well collaborating with unions and, and taking into consideration the labor environment in which they operated and what they could and they could not do within that environment. Uh, if you were talking about firms that operate in the manufacturing side of the industry, I mentioned how their capacity for innovation was fairly limited, but in the, if they wanted to compete in the new environment, they needed to uh, will increase that capability for innovation. And for that, they need very specialized skills. They needed information for the suppliers. They needed information for their buyers. They needed, again, significant, amount of, significant amounts of capital. And they needed research facilities that, at the time, they didn't have. So that, that's, that's the reason why, uh, ultimately, I say that upgrading is a coordination problem. You have to cooperate with a number of factors uh, of different actors in order to get those external resources. Now, there are two main mechanisms of, of coordination. The first one is market coordination. The, one, the other one is strategic coordination. Basically, uh, strategic coordination basically means collaboration primarily with the state, but also with other external actors uh, in terms of uh, internal networks, internal exchanges, and so on. But let's talk first about, well, the benefits of, of using market coordination. So, uh, um, well, part of the literature says that upgrading took takes place solely through market coordination. But argue, I would argue that in the case of late advanced economies and less advanced economies, uh, this is not necessarily the case. First of all, there's a problem in terms of the resources that they can access through the market. So in order to upgrade, uh, what I was saying is that firms need to uh, restock in terms of capabilities and resources, but those capabilities and resources need to be very difficult to imitate. Because if they are imitable, then everybody has them, therefore, well, that's not a very good sustainable source of competitive advantage. But if they're not, if they're not 
easily immutable, then that means that they're not gonna be available through the market. So therefore, buying these capabilities to the market is gonna be fairly difficult. Another problem is that uh, less advanced countries tend to suffer to, uh, from what is generally referred to as institutional gaps. What that means is that some of the actors that firms need to uh, collaborate with may not be up to par and may not be able to provide the resources and capabilities that firms need. For instance, one of the features of both the Spanish and Korean dictatorships was that they repressed labor movements. So there was something called unions, but they were not free representative uh, organizations of labor needs. And uh, the case of Korea is particularly interesting. So if you, if you look at how unions collaborate with firms in, in a country like Germany, well, there's a very close collaboration uh, regarding aspects like long-term long -term, um, strategic, um, stra strategic direction of the firm, um, the skill needs of the firm, or you know, well, agreements regarding shifts for workers, different shifts, and so on. Uh, this is not, see, in a country like Korea, that type of culture does not exist at all. And part of it is the legacy of, of the country's dictatorial re regime. So what had happened is that uh, labor concerns had been repressed so badly that when the country democratizes in 1987, uh, unions emerged, but their main concerns are definitely not collaborating and working with firms and discussing the finer points of long-term strategy, but actually improve labor conditions and increase, uh, and increase wages. And they become very antagonistic, not collaborational with firms. Another problem is that the free markets tend to uncleanse unfavorable dynamics that may actually may more difficult, may make it more difficult for firms to upgrade. Uh, and Spain is a good example of that. So when Spain uh, joins the European Union in 1986, Spain immediately adopts, adopts legislation that enables foreign investors to, uh, to invest in the country under the same conditions as resident Spaniards. What this means is that foreign investment can be seen and thousands of uh, productive firms uh, from the Spanish economy are bought out by foreign investors. Now, did that, did that lead to upgrading of any sort? Well, the answer is actually generally no, because what these investors did is that they bought out their Spanish production facilities and they closed them down or they reduced them very significantly and they, uh, and they used, used those facilities to distribute product manufacture elsewhere and, and to produce uh, and to generate after service. Um, another difficulty is that when, when firms are competing in the context of open, open markets and they're trying to upgrade, they're immediately setting themselves up to compete with more established market leaders that have more resources and capabilities than they do. And so that makes the transformation very difficult to achieve, very risky, and very well, and it's very uncertain that it will succeed. So for entrepreneurs in those uh, circumstances, well, it's actually a better option to simply sell out as those uh, Spaniards did in the 1980s and just reap the benefits for themselves rather than undertake all that risky transformation. And as I mentioned, well, that didn't work out so well for Spain. Instead of uh, upgrading through foreign investment, what they got is a very, very large shrinkage of product, productive capacity, at least in manufacturing. So that leads us to the other main mechanism of, of coordination, which would be strategic coordination. Now, there are three main uh, 
forms through which hierarchical uh, coordination could take place between states and firms. Two of them are hierarchical forms of coordination in which either the states or firms have a higher status relative to one another, and the other one would be non-hierarchical coordination, which means that it's based on interdependencies between states and firms, and both actors have the same status. So if we start with hierarchical coordination, as I was mentioning before, that uh, the first um, the first possibility would be the one in which the state architectures a plan for, um, for the transformation <coughs> of the economy and then firms implement that plan. So this is very much the argument that was developed in the 80s and 90s uh, and that was the explanation and that was the argument that the development of state literature uh, used to explain the industrialization of, of a few Asian countries. Uh, but I, as I was mentioning before too, the circumstances under, under which these uh, economic transformations took place have significantly changed. So uh, they're having social changes, geopolitical changes, uh, economic changes, um, namely liberalization, financialization, uh, greater integration of uh, all countries in the global economy and so on. And that makes it a lot more difficult for this type of model to, to work. The alternative option would be that in which, the, in which firms dominate the policy making process. Uh, so that's generally referred to as state capture. Now, um, the literature, uh, well, it's actually very difficult to measure state capture in practice. So uh, the World Bank has developed a set of, I think it's 12 to 15 different indicators that are very different, difficult to measure quantitatively or qualitatively. So what there is is a set of countries that are very clear cases of state capture and very dysfunctional economies and a lot of other cases in which you see a little bit of corruption here and there, but it's very difficult to ascertain whether there's actually state capture or not. What it seems clear though is that in the basket case, basket cases that where state capture is very clear, you don't see instances of upgrading. What you see is very complacent firms that operate in a very favorable, favorable um, national environment, and they don't see the need to transform or become more competitive or transform their internal uh, capacities. So I, I would argue that given how Korea and Spain have done, this is not the type of system that they were relying on. So that leads us to think about forms of non-hierarchical coordination. And what this means is that, uh, well, state and firms were um, interdependent and they relied on each other. Namely, well, the state relies on firms to generate wealth and to generate employment. And on the other hand, firms need the state to provide a number of socially embedded skills and capabilities that they cannot access uh, in any other way. So, but, um, let me pause here and see if anybody has any questions because that's that's a lot <laughs> of information. <laughs> yes. 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 I was just wondering. Um, so you mentioned the European Union, but at that time the European Union was paying Spain a lot of transfers. Mm -hmm. And did you take this into account? I mean, it, it prevented Spain kind of from running a big current account deficit in a sense that it, it had access to foreign borrowing because its current account looked actually fine. People looked at Spain and said, oh, they actually have a balanced financial and current account. Uh, we can lend to them. And this was maybe only possible through EU transfers mm -hmm. that gave them. So do, do, do you take this into account? And Because you were mentioning that the EU, maybe it wasn't that good of an impact that it had in terms of manufacturing. But the transfers maybe would have given it a head start compared to South Korea? 
Well, I mean, yes, it's true that it was able to borrow, but I think what you also need is, I mean, you would have also need a strategy, right, to use that money. I mean, I, don't, I mean, uh, so in which way are you thinking? Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm not denying that the EU had an impact on it and, and it probably helped undertake some of these transformations because yes, there were, there were transfers of money, uh, but you still need, I guess you still need a state that is very committed to this transformation and you need a state that, is, that has, you need a plan. Right, and the plan in Spain was to liberalize markets for products and to protect the markets for services. So, like I mentioned, uh, in most manufacturing sectors, what well, foreign investors would come in and buy, they bought something like 10,000 firms over a period of four or five years. Uh, and, and so, what happened is that they didn't invest in upgrading, they just basically closed down manufacturing facilities and they use it to, um, yeah, I'm, I mean, so in which way, I mean, I don't know. No, I'm just thinking whether you think it played a significant role. Yeah, it did. The, the transfers, purely the transfers, not, okay. the, not the EU itself, mm -hmm. but the, the transfers as a, as a whole that Korea, South Korea didn't have, I assume, not an expert in South Korea, I don't know if they had any um, transfers. Yeah. I was wondering. No, no, I do not consider it as a separate as a separate issue. No, I consider the impact of, of the EU as as part of uh, Spain becoming integrated in an entity that is larger and that produces and that provides access to um, other markets, but not necessarily as a separate argument. And I don't look at transfers separately. Okay. No. Yes. Uh, you may be about to segue into this, but in terms of the non-hierarchical coordination that you're looking at, how much do you look at associations? coordination that takes place among businesses before or in the process of working with the state, in the process of organizing that dialogue? Do you look at the, the differences or are there significant differences in the ways that businesses actually organize the association in Korea versus in Spain? Uh, you are referring to the Taiwan, for instance, or? Uh, I was thinking more along the lines of trade associations, things mm -hmm. that you see in other countries. Chevrolet is a very sort of Korean phenomenon. Right. Um, do you see the sort of associations forming uh, that exist I mean, in the United States, the Pharmaceutical Association, the mm -hmm. Auto Association? Do you see those sort of entities forming in both of these countries? Uh, you see, yeah, you see those kinds of entities in both countries, but I think what I see is direct relationships between these very large firms and the government directly and in absence of these associations. So basically, uh, in, in both Spain and Korea, you have a few very large firms that are very influential and in a few sectors, and, and they cooperate and they talk directly to the state because they're so large and they have so much power. They also tend to be the ones that organize or lead the trade associations. So in essence, there's not very huge differences between them talking as, as the loudspeakers of the associations and speaking for themselves. Yes? I'm curious, this is not my field by any means, so I'm gonna come out of nowhere. But it seems to me that when, when uh, the state, you know, when you're thinking about state capture and, and talking about uh, people being relatively complacent with the situation that states don't really move, they are okay with what it is. But it seems to me that using the examples that you have that when the state goes through a major crisis such as the war, Japan, uh, France, 
and, 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 and there is a need that comes from all over, from the people inside as well as from the people outside, to bring in the resources that the, the country may need to rebuild itself. You know, Japan, nuclear power going in, you know, they're coming for certain all that's total destruction type of thing. So it brings the people to a level where they say, listen, we have nothing to lose but build up. <laughs> and then you have the resources that come from the outside, you know, the Marshall Plan in, in Europe, to build it up right from the beginning. So you bring the equipment <laughs> that comes in. And then when you get to a level, you are like just at the level of everybody else who has been complacent. And that gives you an edge to begin with. So when, when you be, began this, you were talking about uh, Spain looking at France, Mm -hmm. And then South Korea looking at Japan. Well, yeah, yeah, both of them went through hell and back, and you know they rebuilt. So when you are not really at that level, you have to build up your people then to go through a crisis, you know, mm -hmm. opportunity to then build yourself up. So that's that's what I'm coming from. That's, that was the, the kind of what came up to me. Mm -hmm. Then you know the coordination and whatever it is it has to do with the external resources coming into the country and building up. So mm -hmm. to speak. And you're right that sometimes crisis, very, very deep crises, uh, are useful to galvanize opinions across very different fields to undertake transformation. And I would argue that this happened in Spain and Korea around the beginning of the 1980s. Uh, the two countries have grown very fast, but there were systems that were based on low cost of labor, low cost of energy, low cost of capital. All that changes by the end of the 70s as a result of the oil crisis and as, and as a result of the development of the two countries. You know, there were all these social pressures uh, from labor movements or from social movements because labor had been so repressed. Uh, there was, you also see the ends of dictatorships in the two countries, so there's a there's a social desire for a different type of transformation. And I think you're right that that plays an important role in galvanizing or you know, putting everybody together to think of a different system. And I think that makes a difference between uh, countries like Spain and Korea that have succeeded and perhaps other countries that have, uh, that have not been as successful. <coughs> yeah. Um, any other questions? I'll just wait to see. I'm, uh, I'm trying to determine. This is you're going to come up with a model that's probably that you're probably able to duplicate in the rest of the world. Because if that's the case, I'm still waiting to see the human factor. You know, mm. and by that I mean, you know, uh, let me just give you an example. Mexico, okay, that I'm very familiar with. Um, in the case of the uh, of, in Spain, you have the European Union. In Mexico, you have NAFTA. And uh, somehow, despite all these years, you know, really, the economic development of Mexico didn't get there. I mean, it, it went for the for the upper, you know, groups there, you know, and uh, and it has a lot to do, to me, in my view, with the, with the human factor. So, are you going to be talking about that? Is that part of your model here? Are you talking about when you're referring to the human factor? Do you refer about the attitudes of policymakers, or are you referring uh, oh, to I'm talking about a skills lot of levels? All the way up to corruption. I'm sorry mm. to mention, but it's part of this. You know, uh, benefiting only the upper echelons of the, the society, and uh, and the attitudes on the part of the rest of the population. You know, which say, well, you know, I, I'm not getting anything out of this. You know, I'm, I'm still a poor employee. Uh, you know, schooling for my kids is awful. I have nothing to aim for. Mm -hmm. Therefore, why should I cooperate in this 
program or this so-called, you know, uh, lead to to right. a better. So, to me, that's a very important issue: the, the human factor. And I just mm -hmm. wanted to know if you, if in the process you're going to be including this in the model. I include it, but probably not to the extent that you would like me to. <laughs> oh, okay. In the sense that, no, I mean, one of the factors, and I think you're right, is that you need a state that has a very deep long-term commitment to economic transformation. So if you don't have that, then you're unlikely to have a system of coordination that is going to persist over time or over a sufficiently long period of time for that type of transformation to take place. Um, the, other, the other thing is that, um, well, Okay, that moves a little bit apart. So, I mean, the idea is that, uh, so states and firms continue to need each other, right, in order to transform. But I think the attitudes of policymakers and sometimes their backgrounds uh, play and, and the, uh, well, the types of linkages that a country has with the external environment have an important, have an important role to play. Uh, for instance, in the case of Spain and Korea and ICT, one thing that is very different is that is the policymakers' background. So Spain didn't have a dedicated ministry for uh, for ICT. Uh, well, most uh, most economic policymakers were journalists. They were either lawyers or they were economists. So they had no idea about industry. They could not come up with a well-developed strategic plan for it. By contrast, Korea had a dedicated ministry to industry. It was headed by an engineer. And on top of that, it had a very specialized, high-level, cohesive, well-paid bureaucracy of people that had been educated uh, at some of the best schools in the US. Some of them had experience in industry. And then they were brought back into the country. So it was an infrastructure that was very helpful in that. On top of that, Korea also had a world-class higher educational institution for engineering, which is called CAIS, and it was funded by help from, from the US, and that was part of, you know, that generated that set of uh, highly skilled engineers that were needed in order to do transformation, at least in this industry. Uh, there were also um, one very high-level specialized research center specialized in that, that particular industry. So you have, yes, like you mentioned, you have all these elements in place that favor a particular type of, of strategy. Right. I, I basically, I just tried to follow up on what the lady in the back said in the beginning, which is, I believe in the model, there should be like intervening factors that have to be considered in the model, you know, mm -hmm. because I, I believe they're very, anyway, I'm sorry. No, you, you, you can I just piggyback on one aspect sure. of his question, his point? The escape valves to this countries and you have people that say Mexico that instead of like building up really concentrated into really using the resources to build up say well look you know I don't want to waste my time here because the system is totally corrupt you know there's no future here why don't I go to the border and then penetrate that and there I could establish myself you know uh, and bring my family <coughs> along so you, you, you don't really have the capacity, internal capacity to just think about, I have no choice but to build this up. You know what I'm saying? I mean, and that's speaking back on that. And the same goes to a lot, the rest of Latin America, really, in, in that context, that people just emigrate, really. The brains included. Yeah, I mean, so uh, Spain is perhaps partially a useful example to think about this. So. From the beginning of the 1980s, when it was already clear that Spain was democratizing and that it was going to join the EU until 1989, when the Berlin Wall falls, 
Well, there was an expectation that Spain would become the Mexico of Europe. So labor costs were significantly lower than those in France or Germany, and it was still a good location logistically to produce in Spain and then export to Europe because of the single market. However, once you have uh, the Berlin Wall fell, then, uh, then you have all these new uh, sets of countries that were lower cost than Spain. So obviously the country could not follow that route and had to change and had to rally its resources together to do something different. Um, perhaps the difference, the difference between that, uh, well, in Spain, you, uh, so that's Spain. Korea had a different uh, attitude. So whereas Spain was always very happy and very pro-European and really willing to integrate within the European market, the attitude in Korea is one of self-sufficiency. They see themselves as a small country that has been invaded by all their uh, you know, neighbors, and so they don't want that anymore. They want to be their own country. They want to produce their own things. So they have this uh, you know, do-it-yourself attitude. And that's, again, what galvanized this idea of, yes, let's upgrade, let's do better, because we need to compete with these countries. When China is coming over, so we need to move up because uh, competing on low cost is no longer feasible for us. So the two countries had that pressure to transform. Perhaps that's very different until perhaps the past two years uh, to the situation with Mexico. Mexico was part of NAFTA. It could continue to be part of NAFTA for a long period of time, and it could be, well, the low cost producer for, uh, for the US. So uh, that option may come to an end uh, because of the current policies, uh, current economic policies in the US. And that may hopefully galvanize, uh, galvanize the opinion in Mexico towards doing something different. But then again, you need a government that is um, committed, committed to transformation and you know sufficient social support, sufficient support across industries, uh, support from large firms. And honest. Yeah, well, corruption is obviously a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so I was talking about, you know, how there's these shifts in transformation, right, from hierarchical. So as I was mentioning before, both Spain and Korea had industrialized through these state-directed models. So they responded to a to a certain degree to this idea of the developmental state. You had a state that controlled, that uh, provided a plan, and the firms that implemented it. That was pretty much the way that ICT was run until the mid-1980s, pretty much worldwide. So uh, the, the industry was organized around what is generally referred to as the national monopoly paradigm. What this means is that the state owned or controlled a national monopoly uh, operator for telecommunications, and then you had a national electronics industry that provided, um, it export parts of it of its production maybe, but it primarily depended on demand from the national operator, and it also depended on capital from the operator to invest. Um, now, that, that starts to change in the mid-1980s, and the cutoff for, the startup for the change uh, is the liberalization of telecom services in the U.S., uh, which happens uh, in 1985. And as a result of that, the EU starts to exert, pro exert, exert pressure on the WTO and on other advanced economies to liberalize their markets. So there's a very long process of negotiations at WTO levels for the liberalization of the industry. It goes on from the mid-1980s to the mid-1990s. Uh, so there's a long process of transition. And during that, during that transition and during that change, what happens is that there's a shift in the balance of power between firms and the state. So firms, uh, through liberalization, firms gain 
power through their sheer size, their control of the markets in which they operate, and their, and their expertise. So this is a very complex, uh, technically complex and very dynamic sector, so having that expertise is very important. At the same time, you see states lose control over traditional leverages of power, so they can no longer, so they no longer own or completely control telecommunications operators, they cannot force the operators to buy from the national industry, they don't control tariffs for service, and so on. But, uh, so despite this change, however, I would argue that there's still this need for coordination, right? So firms uh, in countries like Spain and Korea needed to universalized networks that meant that they needed patient capital to expand them, uh, they needed to buy state-of-the-art equipment if they wanted to develop, uh, well, of, all of these uh, elements that I mentioned before, right? They needed to transform their organizations, they needed um, research capabilities and so on. At the same time, it's true that the sector continues to be very highly regulated, almost all daily aspects of of the operations of a telecoms operator is regulated, and also will um, there are all these socially embedded resources such as skills and research facilities uh, on which the state continues to play um, a, a large role. So that's where the need for cooperation between the two comes in. However, um, not all countries uh, follow the same path, and I would argue that there are two types of factors that matter in their choices. So the first one refers to the identities and capabilities of the actors involved, so mainly the states and the firms, and the second one to the attitudes and linkages of, to the international environment. So in terms of uh, capabilities of the actors, well, the firm landscape matters a lot. So Spain had a public operator, which was already the largest publicly listed firm in the country. Also, the, ma the operator owned or controlled uh, some of the largest manufacturers in electronics, um, as I mentioned before, Spain had a government uh, made in which policymakers tended to be generalists, so they were economists or lawyers, so they had no specific knowledge of, of the ICT industry. They had not, until 1986, Spain had no specialized bureaucracy for telecommunications, so they depended instead on people, on expertise from the telecoms operator, from Telefonica. Uh, there was a school for telecommunications engineering, but it was not at all a very world-class school, and that's all the references that I've heard from people ha that have gone through it. And as I mentioned also, the attitudes to foreign interactions <coughs> were very particular. So Spain saw its integration in Europe as a very important step in becoming a normal country and an advanced economy. And also the opportunities that came with being part of Europe were very specific. So at the time, Europe was abandoning most European countries, namely all except France, were abandoning the policy of, uh, of supporting national champions in electronics. Instead, what they were doing is try to expand their, um, they were focusing on their telecommunications operators. They were trying to expand abroad. They were trying to expand into the, into the US, which was the, high, the most lucrative market. And they were trying to build alliances among themselves. So that created a type of climate in which uh, Spain was operated. The circumstances in Korea were very different. Um, unlike Spain, what Korea had was the Chaebol, these very large business groups which, uh, with a strong manufacturing core that exercised a degree of market power and a degree of influence over government, um, and there was a publicly controlling combat. Um, the minister, as I mentioned, there was a specialized ministry for ICT headed by an engineer, supported by a specialized bureaucracy, world-class engineering in school, a specialized research center dedicated to ICT. Uh, there was this um, feeling that Korea needed to be self-sufficient 
to prevent invasions, whether economic or of a different kind, from other uh, countries in their environment, and also Korea operating in the sphere of relationships with the U.S. and Japan. And what was happening there at the time was that U.S. electronics manufacturers were starting to outsource their production to lower-cost countries, creating opportunities for Korean manufacturers to enter the U.S. market. And in addition, after 1985 and the Plaza Accords, Japan was restricting the number, well, its exports to the U.S., creating even a, an even better opportunity for Korean firms to enter the U.S. market. So, and I would argue that the strategies that the two countries followed in ICT were very much, uh, well, related to the types of explanations that I mentioned there. So Spain logically prioritized the transformation of its telecommunications operators, and the state facilitated that transformation by enabling Telefonica to sell off its industrial arms. And as I mentioned, um, well, they facilitated foreign investment from, from European firms, and they actually the government intervened in, the bro in brokering the negotiations between the foreign investors and Telefonica to sell those companies. Uh, Telefon um, Telefonica also laid off about half of its working uh, working force of, of its workforce, and the state provided significant support for that by modifying labor laws and also by providing about 50 percent of the capital necessary to pay the people that were living on, uh, leaving the company in very beneficial terms. And it also created a climate of very favorable regulation. For instance, when new services were coming up, such as the mobile, mobile telephony in the 1990s, uh, Telefonica didn't have to pay for its license, whereas competing operators came into the market later and had to pay a significant amount of money for the licenses. So the result was that Spain ended up uh, having a very uh, competitive, a very uh, well lean, profitable operator, but the negative consequence was that the manufacturing industry shrunk. And so, and that also meant because manufacturing is typically associated with higher investments in R&D, that meant that Spain's R&D capability also became fairly limited. So the, the situation in Korea, well, as expected, was very different. Korea instead uh, tried to support its electronics manufacturing subsector, and it did that by using that, ski, that uh, school, specialized school that I mentioned, and specialized research center that I mentioned, to set up uh, progress around a number of R&D projects, and uh, also by selecting standards for services such as um, mobile communications that were favorable to uh, local operators. So the result, again, was a very globally competitive um, industry focused on electronics manufacturing and also world-class R&D capacity. But the result was that to, in order to achieve that, um, Korea ended up manipulating and instrumentalizing the incumbent telecommunications operator. So uh, the incumbent was used to provide patient capital for electronics manufacturers. It was also used to provide patient demand, um, yeah, skills and patient demand for operators. So what that meant is that the telecom operator invested a lot of money uh, in paying off for, for the, development, the developmental process of the electronics industry. Uh, the result is that today SK is a profitable industry, but it continues to have a fairly inefficient workforce. Uh, it has lost uh, opportunities to enter uh, other segments. For instance, it does not operate in mobile telecommunications. Uh, 
and uh, has shrinking market share, um, and the three last CEOs have been ousted out of the company on under accusations of corruption. The last one in 2018. So this is, uh, you know, a long-standing situation that has pervaded for quite a significant uh, number of years. So the conclusions, I would still argue that if you want to upgrade in complex industries, you do need coordination and you do still need um, state intervention. But it's not gonna be under the traditional hierarchical model in which the state dominates the structure. It's more, it's going to be a situation in which states and firms operate on a more uh, equal level. Now, this does not mean that they, that countries are all going to follow the same process and use the same instruments. That's going to depend on the characteristics of the countries, uh, their industrial, their pre-existing industrial base, their, well, the characteristics and the background of their policy makers, and so on. So that's going to determine the kinds of industries and the kinds of bottlenecks that they have to face. And there are indeed various paths to upgrading, and they, and as I mentioned, well, today Spain and Korea are countries that have a similar standard of living and, and economies of a similar size. So the result may be equifinal um, to the extent that, that both countries are, are, are large economies and advanced economies, but the, um, but the externalities and the results in terms of productive specializations are likely to be very different. And uh, obviously, I would need to see how this argument plays out in other, in other sectors, because this one is just the case applied to one industry. But as I mentioned before, it looks like this is the case. Uh, you know, as I mentioned before, it looks like all the large firms in Spain uh, tend to revolve around complex service industries, whereas in Korea, it is the case that most large firms tend to have a very strong manufacturing core. And that's it. <laughs> Thank you. That was, that was a whirlwind uh, uh, <laughs> tour, and there's an awful lot of information there. Um, if I could ask, um, you, you talked about the selling off of uh, domestic manufacturing capacity in Spain following the war, the opening up to foreign capital. Um, and I wonder uh, if that hadn't happened where so, many, so much of the domestic uh, manufacturing base suddenly disappeared. You said something like 10,000 firms over X number of years. Do you think that the overall trajectory of the Spanish economy would have developed differently? Would it have become more of a service-based economy like the South Korean model, uh, as opposed to, uh, I'm sorry, the manufacturing model like the South Korea, as opposed to the service-based that it has become? I don't know. I think the way I see it is that countries are forced to choose somehow which kind of, which kind of strategy they follow. And I think in Spain, they they chose to protect their service industries and then to use the European market to uh, liberalize manufacturing and that let that uh, evolve in whichever way the markets uh, enable it to evolve. Um, had they done it, had they followed the Korean route, the problem would have been that Spain lacked the necessary uh, infrastructure to make that happen successfully. So as I mentioned it, uh, well, Korea had research institutions, they had an ed educational institutions, they had, uh, well, specialized bureaucracy. So these were things that Spain at the time didn't have. So it would have faced, you know, a significant number of obstacles to make that happen successfully because it didn't have those in institutional elements in place. It could have developed them, but it would have been quite an uphill struggle, I think. <laughs> 
Any questions? Oh, I, can I leave one comment? Sure. It was very, I didn't know what to expect, and it really was very good. And uh, you adequately described the situation with uh, South Korea um, and uh, with Spain. I uh, just want to add something. Uh, uh, Spain received, as you well know, a very large sum of money uh, from the EU government uh, for building up their economy. So they did have the economic, uh, uh, well, they, they did have the money to work with, which is very important. Um, and in uh, South Korea's case, um, they started out with Japan using South Korea as a manufacturing base, and they taught them uh, how to produce quality products. So that sold off the South Korean economy. And uh, I don't know if you have those in your in your report, but it's it's very uh, very good in what you said. The only caution I would add is uh, the caution of creating very large companies that um, might make it difficult for small companies to develop their business. Uh, we've seen that in the U.S. where many startups occur in the U.S. and they, uh, some of them are able to grow to the point of being able to compete very well. I think that's a, a longer term uh, structural uh, issue that, that makes uh, a, a better economy in the long run for the average. So this my thought. Very good report. No, and I think you're right, and I think that's a problem in both countries. So, I mean, SMEs are supposed to add dynamism to the economy, and an economy that is not that is dominated by a few large firms that are globally competitive, yeah. is not sufficient to support the economies of these two countries nowadays. That's that's their huge issue, and that's what they're trying to address. But it's very difficult due to the fact that they have these large companies that exercise such a degree of power. So they obviously have to bend the rules in their uh, in their direction, and in doing that, they tend to suffocate. Yeah, small growing yeah. firms. And that gets back to your point about how government needs a plan uh, to uh, help uh, facilitate the growth of the economy, and it's one of the things that they should be cautious about in terms of. Uh, see a number of countries where uh, the incumbent players just become bigger. Uh, so that's a note of caution. Yeah. It doesn't hurt to be large, but it hurts when it, it keeps competition from occurring. Yeah, I think that's a challenge that the two countries face right now. I mean, they are, they are very specialized in a few sectors, and they need to broaden their specialization. They need to change their models because they're no longer sufficient. I mean, and they, they are both, they both suffer a lot as, as a result of the 2008 crisis, including Korea, which was not as expected. Uh, and, and so they're both trying to go through this process of rethinking their models and trying to rebuild them for the 21st century. Not quite succeeding, I think, but it is what they have to do right now. Yes. Good report. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. One, just one other thought. Um, so the Center for International Development here has um, the Growth Lab, uh, and they have an atlas of complexity where I think Ricardo Hausman and his uh, various researchers are looking at um, the economic complexity of countries based on the number of industries and the close associations from one sector to another. Um, and if that's, that would be an interesting 
resource to look at what the growth lab would say in terms of prospects for future and continued growth mm -hmm. uh, of both of these economies, just based on their uh, current, this current, their current assessment of the economic complexity of each. Yes, I should talk to them. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Well, Angela, thank you very much. Please join okay. me.